What is sci-fi and what does it mean to the two of you? Huh. Wow, that's an interesting question. That's a big question. Well, should I take it a link? I'm a science fiction yeah. geek. Um, well, well, science fiction, it's a wonderful playground because it allows, it allows us to comment on our world, but in a way that makes it much more universal. Uh, for instance, uh, when Rod Serling came up with Twilight Zone, he was censored uh, by the networks and the sponsors in terms of saying anything he wanted to say about politics or race or social issues of the day. So he created Twilight Zone so he could comment on those things without the censors um, removing it. And as a result, those Twilight Zone episodes are as timely now in the Trump era as they ever were when he was writing and, and Eisenhower was president or Kennedy was president. So I love the fact that science fiction allows me to um, reach a, an audience of millions of people around the world and the work lasts decades and, and actually centuries ultimately. And um, uh, it also seems to inspire people because there were so many things that were jumped off from things like Star Trek where geek, you know, geek kids grew up to be geek scientists mm -hmm. and they actually jumped in and they, they made it real. So it, it, it really is inspirational. And one thing that I really like about science fiction is it's the same thing with uh, stories in small towns or westerns. It's where a lot of the complexity of modern life is stripped away and we can really focus on moral and emotional issues in a much clearer way. Yes, yeah. And also, if you kill a character, you can bring them back because you can clone them or whatever. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm particularly good at that, <laughs> yes. Have their head in a tank with nutrients yeah. or whatever. You know, it's, it's really fun. Do you remember the first time the two of you were exposed to the first sort of sci-fi story and where you were, yeah. how old you were in life? Yeah well, yeah, well, between the two of us, I'm the real science fiction geek. I mean, Elaine was reading Dostoevsky when she was a kid and, and but, Tolstoy. But I and wanted a robot. I, I wanted you wanted a robot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, um, my first exper experience with science fiction... I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I was reading comic books from as, as early as I can remember. My first uh, favorite book was Farmer in the Sky by Robert Heinlein when I was seven. Uh, I just grew up in the genre. Uh, Twilight Zone, Star Trek, Outer Limits, those are the three shows that made me want to be a writer. And um, as soon as I was a teenager, I started going to science fiction conventions and meeting those writers, the writers who'd written for those shows, uh, Harlan Ellison, D.C. Fontana, David Gerald, Theodore Sturgeon, Richard Matheson, George Clayton Johnson, Ray Bradbury, and they, many of them became friends and mentors. And uh, so I definitely knew where home was for me. And I, I was more brought up on the social, older, uh, the social issues and some of the older writers like 1984 and um, and H.G. Uh, Wells where they were really exploring social issues. So that was, so rather than the newer writers, I knew the older ones and my parents leaned strongly to the left and so did I. And so we found their ability to explore things where people would not put up walls because it was in the future, uh, allow them a much greater freedom to reach into people's thought processes and feelings without defensiveness. Mm. So that's sort of some of it. You know, the, uh, I mean, I just was, you know, when I was a kid, I was given a Christmas present of a trip to the Star Trek set. So I was there for the last episode of the original Star Trek ever shot, Turnabout Intruder. So I got to sit in the captain's chair and stand on the transporter. I remember looking up and seeing there was just a light bulb screwed into the, the transporter above, above my head. And I thought, huh, well, gee. And uh, I remember thinking how small the, the um, engineering on the Star Trek set was a forced perspective. And I was thinking, gee, this is a lot smaller than it looks on television. And uh, it was just an amazing day, really a, really a, a, a wonderful, wonderful day, a great, the best Christmas present ever. Aline, do you remember the first time you heard about Space Command? <laughs> oh my God! Oh no. <laughs> uh, well, 
No, I, I don't. It seems <laughs> yes. to be been it's ubiquitous. Just like the, it's the hell you uh, you it's, wandered it's, into. It's, it's ubiquitous. <laughs> you seem to have been talking about it like forever. You, you yeah. know, but uh, but I, I I actually don't remember. When, when did That's you first Jesus. hit me up with that? Yeah, I don't know. I just kind of. Well, you know, it's funny because with Space Command. Um, it evolved over a period of time. It was basically, you know, I, I, as I said, Star, Star Trek was really the formative moment in my life. When, when Star Trek debuted, the first episode was The Man Trap. It aired when I, I think Star Trek debuted when I was 10 years old. And, uh, and it was the thing I'd been waiting all my life for. It really brought everything together. And, uh, and I think from the, from the moment that I read the making of Star Trek when I was 13, I decided I wanted to be a showrunner. I wanted to create and run my own science fiction show. And all the hundreds of hours of television I did, all the books I wrote, were all toward learning that, gaining those skills that I would need to be able to do that thing. And when Elaine and I um, got together, I mean, we've been together for 40 years, we've been married for 39, um, she was a terrific director. She'd already been a director off-Broadway, she'd already been an actress, she was a wonderful writer. And so so on some projects we would collaborate, and on other projects we would work individually over the years. But clearly with Space Command it was obvious that I would need her skill set. And, and we both love working with actors, we love work, working with editors, and I love visual effects artists, I love uh, concept designers and so forth. So I'd, I'd been gathering a team, and uh, so from the beginning I knew I wanted to work with Elaine on this project. But the key jumping off point was we were feeling, both feeling very disturbed about the dark and cynical turn that science fiction had taken. Yes. And uh, he introduced me, well, I, I guess I knew a little bit about it before, but he was a great fan of things like Space Patrol. And it was where you know bad things happened, but good people were good people. Well, well, well just to jump in for a second, yes. Space Patrol was a, a science fiction show that aired live in the 1950s. And I didn't grow up watching it, but in the 1980s, um, USA Cable had a show called Night Flight, and they ran kinescopes of that show. The kinescopes were filmed, basically you'd put a camera, a 16 millimeter camera, on a high, like a, a high resolution TV screen as the show was broadcast live, and you'd record it on film. And those were called kinescopes. And so they were airing those kinescopes of Space Command, and it was a wonderful show. It came before Star Trek, but it had a great sense of adventure. And uh, later I met the star of the show, Ed Kemmer, who'd actually been a pilot in World War II. He, he flew a, a P-51 Mustang, he'd been shot down. He was captured by the Germans, escaped from a German POW camp. He was a real hero before he played a science fiction hero in the and, 1950s. And he looked like one, he seemed he like one. Very handsome man. Yeah. And so, so that was part of the inspiration. And then of course, Star Trek. And, and when Elaine was talking about the dark science fiction, there was a period a few years ago where all the science fiction was very dark and very dystopic, whether it was Battlestar Galactica, which I very much liked, or Elysium, or After Earth, or any of these things, they all were saying the future is going to be really bad and there's not anything you can do about it. And, and, and people are, and most people are mean-spirited and things don't work out well. Right. And what was odd, or what Mark pointed out, what was odd was that this was being written by writers whose lives were pretty darn good. Yeah, you they know? go home <laughs> their, to their families and they live in Pacific Palisades and they have a very nice <laughs> life. They're paid hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. Sure. So somehow there was a disconnect between the life they were creating personally and the work they were writing. And, and I felt very strongly that science fiction, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, Star Trek, those shows had a moral compass. And, and, and particularly Star Trek said, the future is going to have challenges. Star Trek was shot during the Civil Rights Movement, during the Vietnam War, and yet it said the future is going to have challenges, but we can reach across boundaries and barriers and come together to create something better. And I thought that was very important to, uh, to say now. And some of it is not just about science fiction, it's the objective of storytelling. I mean, if we assume that most people are, have kind of a hard life, I mean, somebody in their family is mentally ill, somebody is on substances, 
and they're, they're struggling. You work hard, and you go and you s watch a story, and it says, well, things are really dark and awful, and uh, you don't have any hope, and it's all going to go to hell. And you say, well, is that really a responsible stand to take, or do you want your audience to go out of there and saying, okay, it's a struggle, but people can come out on top. People are basically good at heart if you just give them a shot. And you give people a sense when they leave that theater that there's possibility. It just seems far more accurate and socially responsible, and to yes. just put them on a downer. Well, you know, as it's, uh, we work in an extremely powerful medium. You know, television reaches millions of people around the world. If you do it right, it lasts forever. Um, m most of the shows I've written for are still being watched, uh, even the ones that I wrote when I was in my early twenties, and. Uh, and so the, there's, a, there's a question that many writers never ask themselves, which is, as far as I can tell, which is, am I actually creating something that's making the world a better place? Am I actually sending out a message that I would want people to take to heart? You know, TV can do one of three things. It can either anesthetize or fill people with despair or inspire people. And I think um, the first obligation of, of any uh, dram dramatic entertainment is to entertain, obviously. If you don't entertain, it, you know, it doesn't matter what your message is, people won't stick around for it. But beyond that, once you entertain people, once you bring them into your world and they love that world and want to be part of that world, then if you can say, well, you know, take these lessons, take what you've seen in the story, take it out into the real world, take it out into your life, you can actually have a better life, you can make a better world, I think those are very important messages to um, Communicate. Not not airy fairy, you know, no, like not not, not sugarcoat anything, no. because people don't like to be lied to, and they know when they're being lied to. Like, oh, everybody's happy, everybody's, you know. Right. But 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 if you within a real context where you say, okay, things are hard, you get into a bad mood, you say the wrong thing, but you can be be man enough to apologize. You know, that those are the kinds of things you like to address. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, when you were first creating Space Command, was it in your mind that you were going to attempt to sell it to a studio? It's very interesting. Uh, you know, when I started in television, I've, I've, been, I've been a professional writer since I was 19. I sold, well actually, in truth, my first radio play aired when I was 18 on KPFK. My first short story I sold when I was 19. Um, I wrote, started writing my first book when I was 22, The Twilight Zone Companion, and I was writing for television by the time I was 22 or 23. And uh, when I started in television, if you wanted your work to reach millions of people, it had to be through a studio and a network. And there were only three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and also PBS, you know, public television. And that was it. And uh, so now, and also you had to shoot on 35 millimeter or 16, and you edited on a moviola, and it, was, it cost millions of dollars to make any television program per episode. Now, of course, it's very, very different. You can shoot on a digital camera. We own a RED. And uh, you, you edit on a laptop. Our editor is back at our place right now editing Space Command on our, on our laptop, and it's hooked up to our big screen TV. And, uh, and, and you can reach out to your audience. Your audience can help finance what you're doing. And you can also reach, reach millions of people via the internet. So, you know, a lot of people stay stuck in the way things used to be, and I think that's a big mistake. I embrace the new model, and I love the new model, and I love the direct communication with my audience. I feel that I, I'm the same as my audience, and so if I like something, if I'm enthusiastic about something, I know my audience will be too. And, uh, and so with Space Command, uh, initially my idea was, I, it's funny, when I first came up with the idea of doing a hopeful vision of the future, it's this multi-generational saga that covers 150 years in the future, it takes place in the solar system and beyond, and um, a lot of my friends run network shows. And a number of them said to me, well, you know, listen, we can team up and we can walk this into a network and get a pilot deal. But, if, but I knew from experience that if I sold it, and it probably would sell, 
I'd be hired to write the script, and then the network could cut it off its script, and then they would own it. No one would ever see it. Or they could greenlight it to production of the pilot, and then we'd shoot the pilot. And if they didn't greenlight it to series, again, no one would ever see it. Or if they uh, you know, greenlit it to series, they might have notes that would screw it up and ruin it. So, so I thought, well, no, let me see if I can raise money. I'd never raised money before. But I said, let's, let's see if I can reach out to the audience. I mentor thousands of young people in Hollywood, well, actually people of all ages, uh, via the roundtable I run and the classes I teach. And I'd been hearing about crowdfunding. And so I thought, well, let's see if I could do that. So um, our target was $75,000. Uh, to raise in two months. We hit that in three days and we kept going and we raised $221,000. And then I sold investment shares to my backers and raised another half million. And we're still going strong. And uh, so that was enough to open our own studio, shoot the first two hours of Space Command, shoot 30 minutes of the second two hours. I've written the first eight hours and outlined hours nine through 12. So that's a season. So then the question is, well, do I want to take it to a network? Do I, is there a reason to take it to a network if you've gotten this much of a head of steam? There are over 500 scripted comedies and dramas on all the various networks and platforms now, 500 series. The cost of rolling out a show, promoting it, just so people know it exists, is $23 million. I can raise enough money to make Space Command. I can't raise enough money to promote Space Command. <laughs> so, so that's where a studio and a network, or more ideally, more specifically, a network or big platform like Netflix or Amazon makes sense. Because if I really want to reach a world audience on a broad scale if I want this to really last and, and reach the people I want to reach, that makes a lot of sense. And the, the, the fact of the matter is that he started out wondering if it would be a single film. And what happened was once he started with the crowdfunding, something that we hadn't seen as um, an aspect of crowdfunding wasn't just gathering money to shoot something, but it was gathering awareness worldwide. Yes. And that awareness through us, because we're both soft bunny people, and we said maybe a few other people are really down on this dark trend and will want to see something that's hopeful, a hopeful vision of the future. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the outpouring was so great, that's what ignited this crazy ambition in this yeah. mad well, person. Yeah, yes. and, uh, and it started to, to grow and grow and grow. And he said, well, maybe two, maybe three. And so although it started as a single, it became it a much larger story right. and uh, became, you know, well, how about ongoingly? And uh, we've had investors just walk up to him and say, I invested in this because I wanted to some, see something that gave me hope, Yes. specifically. Yeah. And so we realized that something that was troubling to us was profoundly troubling to vast numbers all across the globe. Well, you know, it's funny because during our Space Command uh, campaign, um, I got a phone call and it turns out that there's a real Space Command. It's the space going arm of the United States Air Force. And they called me, a, ma a major in, in the Air Force called me. And I thought, oh gosh, they're either going to want to shut me down or <laughs> have me change the name. And I got on phone, the phone with, 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 with uh, Major Glenn Roberts of the U.S. Air Force. He says, we love what you're doing. We, we, we want to be part of it. Great. Oh so, but the funny part is during our campaign, if you typed Space Command into Google, we came in first and the Air Force came in second. And even to this day, if you type in Space Command, the Air Force comes in first and we come in second even still. So millions of people around the world know about Space Command. Thousands gave us money, and, um, which is very, very heartening. But yes, as Elaine was saying, originally it was going to be one two-hour story. And I actually wrote half of it before the campaign and then immediately sat down afterwards and wrote this, the second half of that two-hour script. But because I was doing media interviews every single day of the campaign, as I talked about Space Command, the story started to grow in my mind. And it, as Elaine said, it grew to, from two hours to four hours to six hours to eight hours, and finally it was a whole series. And so I, when I sat down and wrote the first, so what had, was originally going to be the first two hours, 
ultimately became the fourth story, the fourth two-hour story. And so I sat down and wrote the other scripts. So the, the first ones, the first, the, so I've written four, uh, four of the two-hour scripts already. And, uh, and what was going to be the first one is now going to be the fourth one. So if you ever go back to our original Kickstarter campaign, the actors I'm talking about as being in Space Command actually now are in that fourth one. So it's Armin Shimmerman from Deep Space Nine and Buffy, Christina Moses who just starred in Containment, Ethan Phillips from Star Trek, Voyager, etc. So um, It's sort of like a loose torrent and he sweeps more and more people fun. along in his yes. way. Well, the lovely thing is that all the actors I approached, um, uh, many of them stars from shows I'd worked on, said yes. And so, I mean, my friend Mark, Mike Harney from Orange is the New Black and Doug Jones who starred in Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy and The Strain. He's going to be starring in the new Star Trek TV show, Star Trek Discovery, and Mira Furlan from Babylon 5 and Lost and Bill Mooney from Babylon 5 and Lost in Space and uh, Bob Carter from Star Trek Voyager and Stargate, Stargate Atlantis. These are wonderful actors. James Hong, who was in Blade Runner and Big Trouble in Little China. He's one of my heroes. He's phenomenal to work with. And Ferran Tahir, who was in... J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movie and Iron Man and, you know, Elysium. I mean, these are phenomenal actors and, um, and I'm honored to be working with them. It's just, it's just such a joy. I wanted to go back to something you said about being adverse to learning something new and just giving yes. something a try. Yeah. I think you'd written, I was just doing research last night, it was yeah. maybe on the Super Mentors or sure. MarkSecree.com, yeah. but it was about learn something new. I yes. think that was the title of the post, maybe I'm paraphrasing. Sure. But um, especially for people maybe Generation X or older, yes. they don't want to learn something no. new. But millennials, no. I think, are much more open to it because they've been exposed to uh, you know, all of this technology. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that, to someone that is very set in their ways about working in a certain medium and, and it holds them back in some ways? Well, here's the question about, the first question always is, what do you want to accomplish? And the second question is, am I succeeding at that? If you're not succeeding, then you have to change what you're doing if you're committed to reaching the finish line. Most people stay stuck in, the real question is, what is the operational phrase of your life? For many people, the operational phrase of their life is, I'm not getting what I want. Well, if that's the, if that's the sentence that's ruling your life, you've got to find another sentence. And, it, and so it's much more liberating if the sentence is, I'm going to get to the finish line and I'm going to learn what I need to learn, I'm going to find what I need to find, I'm going to team up with whom I need to team up with, I'm going to create what I need to create. So that's liberating. And so, for, but, but also you have to say, let me try something, and if it doesn't work, I'll try something else. But a lot of people are very afraid of failing, and um, you know, it's, it's very funny because you know, Elaine, Elaine will often talk about, well, you know, if you fell down in real life, would you just stay down? No, you'd get up, you'd continue on, you know. And so, so, but a lot of people feel that if they fail, that's the end of it. The, the doom will ensue, and that's not what happens. And so, and then it's the, another thing that I always find very funny is when people say, well, life is like a river, and uh, you, it'll, it'll take you where you're meant to go. And I always say to them, if you fell into a real river, would you have that opinion? And it's like, <laughs> no, you'd swim like hell to get to the shore. Life is not like a river. Life is basically... Uh, deciding what you want to accomplish. Life is not, you're, you're, you, it's very rarely, very rarely that you're handed something on a plate where it's like, here, this will be easy. Almost everything we try to do is hard, it's difficult. But the more we're willing to say, well, I'm getting, I'm going to get where I'm going, you know, that's, uh, that's what happens. But it, it's more than what you want to accomplish. I think that there's a very uh, poisonous thing that we get taught from the time that we're very small, which is that um, it, it's enough to not be happy. You know, I, I, we don't think that if you're not happy that it's enough. That no. happiness is something that we deserve, that we all deserve. 
And to say that, well, I'm li leading an okay life, I don't think that's okay. He doesn't think that's okay. Yeah. Uh, it's like, no, if, if you're not feeling happy, if you're not feeling like you're doing your best, I, I really believe that all of us were born with gifts that belong to the world. And if we're too afraid to deliver them, well, that's just a loss. That's just sad. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is linked to, to actually enthusiasm and feeling happy and giving that original peace that we, we're all born with. Yeah. Well, a few years ago, I had to figure out the secret of life. I was going to be talking to an audience of, at a high school, and it was going to be parents and teenagers, their teenage kids and their younger kids. And I thought, well, what do I want to talk about? And I thought, I just don't want to tell you know, war stories from working in Hollywood. So I thought, well, maybe it maybe be useful if I told them the secret of life. So I had to figure out what that was. And it had to be simple so that even little kids could understand it. So what I said was, I said, as near as I can figure, the secret of life is be happy, be kind, be brave. That's it. And sometimes you can't be all three at once, but it's important to strive for those three things. And I think that will, that will lead to a meaningful life and, and a life worth living. And, uh, and also the other thing is that, you know, it's very easy to have an, an, an initial enthusiasm for a creative project, but it's very hard when things start to become difficult, when you have to be there for the long haul. And it's also particularly difficult because you don't know if you're going to succeed. So often you're in the darkness, and that's where you need to surround yourself with other people who have faith when you falter. Uh, years ago, when I uh, graduated from UCLA as an art major, by the time I got out of UCLA, I knew I'd, I wanted to be a writer rather than a visual artist, even though I'd had art, you know, gallery shows of my work, uh, my paintings and my photography when, when I was a teenager. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer, producer, and TV, and there were no um, classes in how to do that. So I decided I would write a book about the Twilight Zone TV show to learn how to do that job. So I started writing the Twilight Zone Companion, and we started submitting it as a project to publishers. And for a two-year period, it was rejected. It was rejected by 25 publishers. And had it just been me, I would have given up. But Elaine said, keep going, keep going. And we figured out wh why it wasn't selling. We fired the agent we had, who had been Rod Serling's literary agent, and uh, we got another agent. She submitted it back to one, one of the publishers who had re uh, rejected it to a different editor, and the book sold. And the book was an instant bestseller when it came out. It sold over half a million copies. It's still in print all these years later. But if I hadn't had Elaine in my life, who believed in me even when I faltered, the book, I wouldn't have finished the book. Someone else would have come out with a book on the Twilight Zone, and I would have just spent the, life, the rest of my life in bars being bitter. You know, so, <laughs> so, so again, which would have been odd because he doesn't drink. <laughs> yeah, would have been, yeah, really, really, I would have just been eating those peanuts and drinking like diet soda or something. It would have been a really wasted life. But again, it's very important to surround yourself with people who love you and people who believe in you. And and it's a two-way street. So Elaine will falter and and have you know dark days, and I'll say no, no, no. Let's let's keep on this path. So it's a two-way street, and that's really important. And I'm wondering about fear of success, because I know that that also is something that people think they don't have, but yeah. it, it's a huge thing because everything around you would then change. People treat you differently. Mm -hmm. Maybe people would be fearful of you or envious of you. Yes, it's terrible to have a lot of money. No. no. <laughs> uh, we live in a gated community. <laughs> I know. It would be terrible. Part, part of it is a mythos of a golden door. Here I am. You know, I have bad thoughts. I argue with my mom. You know, I'm not a good enough person. Uh, but if I go through the golden door, everything will be changed and wonderful, and I'll wake up with my hair in order, and it's all going to be great. And it's this fear of this great transition of something that you can't come up to, or people will be waiting for you to fall. And there are people who, from envy, wait for you to fall. But if you don't see life as this, you know, as, as you know, that you can always 
fall on your face, but just that you are who you are and you're just struggling on a slow, you know, uphill struggle, there'll always be downs, but th that you can come, always fight your way back up. Mm -hmm. I think some of that, that fear is that you, they, uh, the publicity machines create an unrealistic vision of who you are when, you're, when you write well. Like you're suddenly a celebrity and you're this different person. And no, you, you're the same schlubby person, but you write well, you know. Well, it's, but, you know. But, but let me jump so. in on this a little bit, because there's several things about this. Um, part of fear of success, I think, is fear of scrutiny. Because the moment you're on the world stage and the spotlight's on you, you're very worried that, again, as Elaine was saying, you could falter, you could fail, etc. But the good part of it is that, first of all, you, you get paid very well, and that's very nice. And, um, but you have to make sure that the, mo the money doesn't rule you. So in other words, uh, you, it's a good idea to keep your overhead low so that you don't have to take every job that's offered to you. We've turned down more work than we've taken uh, because we, that allows us, first of all, to learn new skills. It also allows us to follow our own creative uh, bent, uh, whether or not it's immediately lucrative. Uh, so we're not ruled by money. We keep our overhead low. But also, there's two Hollywoods. There's a Hollywood of awful, materialistic, neurotic, crazy people who are destructive and toxic and dreadful. And they get a lot of the press. <laughs> and there's another Hollywood, equally real, that's, com that's composed of people who are wonderfully talented, creating amazing work. They come from the heart. They love their families. They go home. They're not crazy. And they're doing it for the right reason. Each Hollywood is equally real. And those kind of people are all up and down the food chain. So what you have to decide is, first, which Hollywood you want to belong to. And secondly, which Hollywood you want to exemplify, you want to be. And, uh, and so what I do, what I've done in my whole career, is I gravitate toward the good Hollywood. So when I started writing The Twilight Zone Companion, I was crawling, crawling through Rod Serling's attic. I was literally, and I was interviewing all the people who worked with him, and I was seeing what great people they were, creating great, wonderful work that changed the world, that made people better. Uh, and, you know, then I wrote the book with Guillermo del Toro, and, and one of my mentors was Ray Bradbury. So I was deliberately choosing people who, first of all, I could learn from, but secondly, who, sh who reinforced my belief that you could be a good person, you could speak from authenticity, you could be kind and compassionate, and that would not destroy your career. In fact, it would make your career better. You had a greater chance of succeeding by being authentic, by being genuine, by being loyal and honorable, than if you were some kind of Hollywood snake. Again. I think some people believe they have to turn themselves into monsters to succeed. The exact opposite is the truth. And I think that that's a very hopeful realization because you don't, don't have to betray yourself or other people in order to, su to succeed. But there is a definite fear among people that they're going to be found out. You know, if you're, if you're doing really, really well, they'll find out that you're really not that good. Yes. And, you know, and that, that really terrifies people. Oh, and what if I'm found out? Mm. But it, sometimes it's, it's, it eases uh, one's burden to know that that's what most people feel, that they're going to be found out no matter how famous they are, no matter how, for how long they're eventually going to be right. found out for not being that amazing. Well, and, but again, this is where it's so useful to, to interview these, these hugely successful people, these wonderful, brilliant artists, because you see what happens when they have reje rejections, when they have disappointments. Um, there, was a, there, was a, there was this guy who, um, he, he wanted to be a writer, and he wrote a script, and he sold his script. He had his first big sale to the networks, 
And so he went from, he traveled from Ohio to New York to have his first meeting with the producer and the director and all the actors around a table. And he dressed up in a suit and a tie and he had a briefcase and he went in to meet with them. And the meeting went really well and he said everything just right and, and the meeting came to an end and he shook their hand and he's headed for the door and he was so nervous that he missed the door, walked into the wall and dropped his briefcase and his briefcase sprang open and his socks and his underwear sprang out. So <laughs> blushing, blushing furiously, blushing furiously, he gathered up all the socks and the underwear, put them back in the briefcase, stumbled out into the, into the corridor, into the hallway, and thought to himself, how can I ever face these people again? And the producer came out into the hallway and put his arm around this young writer, and he said, look, little friend, all they care about is what you have up here. And the writer was Rod Serling. And that was one of his first experiences in, a, in, in this industry. And so even Rod had those moments, you know, and of course he became one of the great writers, one of the great showrunners. And, uh, Which and was, he didn't know. He didn't know. He died at age 50, and in the last interview he gave, so the reporter said, do you think your work uh, will, uh, will last? And he said, uh, good writing, like fine wine, has to age well with time. And he said, I think my work has been momentarily adequate. So, so he never knew. He never knew that Twilight Zone was going to be one of the great, great shows ever made, one of the greatest shows ever made that would last and be, be even more popular now than when it aired. So it's really dangerous to aim for great. You just say, I'm going to do the very best I can and tell the deepest truth I possibly can and just see what happens. You know? Well, what you have control over is what you create. What you don't have control over is how it will be received. You don't have control over whether, whether it will last. You don't have control over people, whether people will appreciate it. All you can do is say, okay, what's my truth? You know, Rod, Rod used to say, when he, about his own writing, he used to say, is this the truth as I know it, or better yet, as I feel it? Well, that's all we can do, really. All we have is our authenticity. All we have is our truth and our story. Which is what I always say to actors, because I used to coach, you know, actors, and it was like, what is your most important job? What's the first job? And I get all kinds of answers, and I say, well, no, your most important job is to tell your truth. Yes. To tell the truth of your character, right. whatever that is. And because that's what people will connect with and share, and and that's where we go out of the, uh, you know, out of the theater is feeling a little less alone and a little more connected because we recognize the truth. Mm -hmm. If you're not telling the truth, um, there's there's a real disconnect. Uh, there was a television show with a showrunner, and they were dealing with a very painful subject, which was uh, sexual abuse of children, adults, adult survivors, and um, and I was watching this clip of this uh, show. And it felt completely bogus, and I thought, uh, and it was I thought, well, it's important to have this on television because people tend to feel very isolated by these kind of ugly incidents. But but if you have it in an exploitative fashion, then it's the opposite. It has the opposite effect. It doesn't make people feel more connected or less shamed. It makes people feel more isolated because it's not their truth up there. Mm. And so I was quite offended by the show, not the topic, but the way in which it was handled. And I said, what research did you do for this? They said, oh, well, we just all thought we could imagine what it would be like. And I thought, enough said, you know, and right. it was really clear in this show. And so, um, I mean, the truth is very, very important. And if you don't know the truth and you're going to present what you want to be the truth, re re you, better, you better research it because this isn't a joke. Well, you, you know? should know what you're talking about. Yes, you, 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 know. you, owe, it, you owe it to your audience. Yeah. You're, you're being given a great privilege to speak to hundreds of thousands, or hun hundreds millions. of people, thousands of people, millions of people. Mm. It's a great privilege. And if you lie, well, shame on you. 
you know, it hurts people. It, it and, does. But also, you know, and this guy was very, very successful. And so it's not our responsibility whether or not someone else succeeds or not, whether their work is deserving or not. It's our responsibility to, to, to tell our truth, to be, to do our job. That's all we have control over, you know. And, um, and, then, and also it's very important to know what's a, what's a game you can't win. So for instance, if you're pitching a story to a network or a studio and that's not what they want to make, then the question ultimately becomes how committed are, are you to what you want to do? Because at the end of the day, you have to decide what you're going to create. And, and if you say, okay, because you know, as, as I said, we mentor many, many, many people and we've done so for many years. And most people give up at the slightest resistance. And it's very important if you're actually going to create something worthwhile to have um, a backbone, you know, and to say, okay, look, someone once, once asked me the secret of my success, and I said, I don't give myself an out. That means that if I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's harder. But it, it's, it's irrelevant if it's hard. I mean, it's, sort of, it's just what I take on and I, I'm committed to doing it. It's, but, it. But it's also exhilarating. It's so much fun. I, I love what I do. Yes, you don't want to ever hear somebody say, well, they won't let me. I don't know who they is. Yeah. But, but if, if... They're imaginary if playmates. They're ma yes. Yeah. But, but if, uh, you know, buyer A doesn't want it, well, do your research and find buyer B and buyer yeah. C well, who does, who, who is good with that kind of topic well, who also, will help you say it. Well, but also in the old days, you know, when there were only three networks and it would cost millions of dollars and you had to shoot on 35 millimeter, then there was an excuse. If like, for instance, Orson Welles, you know, the last 20 years of his life, he never got to make a movie. Well, that wasn't his fault. He was trying hard. It was just so expensive. He was in an art form that was crazily expensive. But nowadays, when you can buy, you know, I mean, everyone has a camera in their phone, for God's sake. If you want to make something, make it. You know, and, and, and there also is a question, you know, if you want a career in Hollywood, and by Hollywood I mean sort of this, this world art form that we work in, um, you have to say, well, what, what am I in it for? Am I in it because I want to be rich, because I want that Hollywood dream of the big house and the, and the limousine? Well, that's one dream. It's not my dream, God knows. Or is it that you want to create something to share with the world? Well, if it's the latter, then anytime you say, well, they're not letting me do it, it means that you're just get, letting them stop you and you're not saying, okay, what skills do I need to learn? What, who do I need to affiliate with? What? If you decide that you're going to greenlight yourself, then you're free. But, but of course, you know, if you say they won't let me do it, then you've got your good excuse. Yes, and the question always is, do you want to live in the excuse or do you want to live in the, in the action? You know, because, uh, and again, you know, it's not for us to say what someone else should do, but it's up to us to... But isn't it tempting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. But no, but it's up to us to be authentic. And if we inspire others, that's great. If someone hears any of what we're saying and says, well, gosh, let me take a crack at this. Let me try. You know, and, uh, and you know, if you try and you keep trying and you find the way uh, through the door, then, you know, it, you, you usually do quite well. There was another friend of mine who, um, he decided he wanted to be the greatest writer who ever lived. True story. And he went to a psychiatrist. And after an hour of talking about this stuff, the psychiatrist said to this young man, he said, uh, well, I think I can cure you of this delusion, so you should come see me twice a week. And my friend left that session and decided that instead of doing that, he would just go for it. And uh, that was Ray Bradbury. And he became, of course, one of the greatest writers, <laughs> writers of the 20th century. And Ray told me that story. He was my mentor for over 10 years. And uh, so, so again, one man's delusion is another man's great accomplishment. And what determines that often is just the drive, the drive. 
You know, I think Ray once told me that, that his life was the story of someone who decided he was going to go somewhere and went. Going back to the idea for Space Command, mm -hmm. sure. how long have you actually been working on it since the very beginning, like the idea, the inception? It was like 1832. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, now, the, um, the initial idea for Space Command came about in 2012. Oh, and perfect year. So it was a few years. And, uh, but, but it was really in, in germinating in my head for a long, long time because, again, I wanted to create uh, a hopeful vision of the future. I wanted to do for the modern audience what Star Trek had done for me as a kid. And uh, so I really was starting to put the pieces together. And also I was collecting actors. You know, as I, in, in my career in television, I was you know, working on a lot of science fiction shows and gathering a lot of actors that I really wanted to work with again and write roles for. And, uh, you know, I, I recently did, wrote a book with Guillermo del Toro, and I, um, I won the Saturn Award uh, a couple years ago, and I saw this amazing guy in this, in this Victorian coat, this tall, thin guy, really remarkable looking. And I went up to him to, at the Saturn Awards to congratulate him on the, the coat and how he looked, and it was an actor named Doug Jones. And Doug is in pretty much everything Guillermo does. He played Pan in Pan's Labyrinth, and Abe Sapien in Hellboy, and he's in The Strain, and he's in just pretty much everything, Crimson Peak. And, uh, and he's been in tons of other things. He's the lead alien in Falling Skies. So we had lunch, really hit it off, and as I told him I was going write to a, write a role for him, a lead. And that's what we did in Space Command. And uh, so, so the, the crowdfunding campaign was in 2012, and that, and that along with this, the investment shares that we sold and are still share, uh, continuing to sell, um, gave us the money to open our own studio. And then, as I said, I, I, mentioned, I wrote um, you know, the first eight hours of the show and outlined hours 9 through 12, and Elaine and I have been actually co-writing on this. And, uh, and uh, so that was this big tapestry, this great big canvas. And, uh, and so, uh, so it just kind of grew and grew as I started to know who the characters were and what the story was. I knew I wanted to tell a multi-generational story, and I wanted to have a very a multi-national, multi-ethnic, multi-racial cast. So our actors are uh, white and black and Asian and uh, Latino, and uh, our actors come from Venezuela and Pakistan and Sri Lanka, all around the world. And, um, and I cast many famous actors, but I, we also had a talent search where anywhere, er, anyone anywhere in the world could download the audition scenes and audition for two of our leads. And we got 7,000 inquiries and 1,200 videos. And we ultimately ended up casting six actors from those, from those auditions, and, um, including our, two of our leads, and uh, from, the, from Wyoming, from New York, from Iowa, from all over the place. And, um, so Space Command kind of came together in bits and pieces, and it still, um, it still comes, comes, it's funny because once you start shooting something, the actors and their performances and the chemistry between them also is something that starts to alter your vision. You start to, it, it becomes a, 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 a dialogue between you and them if, you're, if, you're, if you do it well. And, uh, and so then you say, oh, well, here's an interesting way of doing it, or here's an interesting way of, of having it pay off. Also, because we, we jump back and forth over five generations of our, of our characters. Uh, there's four families, and we see the action and reaction. We go back and forth between that over a 150-year period. And so, so, for instance, the first two-hour story takes place at one point 60 years from now, and then the second two-hour story takes place three years after that, and then at various points we're jumping 90 years later and coming back. So it's, it's really this very interesting 
um, tapestry that we get to see. So, um, so I really love that. I haven't seen that before. I haven't seen anyone else do that. And it's very interesting to see uh, actors develop and own a role. Yes. And that definitely does mold and usually deepen. You know, you're starting to rewrite and throw in extra scenes because they themselves you know, just really step deeply into the character. Yeah. And things come alive that you hadn't seen. You know, relationships come alive that you hadn't seen. And so uh, the, the talent hunt was amazing because there's brilliant acting all over the world. We only cast six people, but we would have liked to have cast a lot more. They just didn't quite fit the role as well. But they were fine actors all over the country. And so that was fun. And it was fun. Around the world, actually. All around the world. Yeah. And it was really fun with Doug Jones, who is a wonderful actor, but he usually is almost like a mime because he plays creatures. Right. But he has this he's a stunningly beautiful man. And uh, and so in this we finally get to see him and we get to see what he looks like. He has a great delicate like. face. Extremely delicate yeah. and a very sensitive actor. Great guy. And so it, it's it's grand to be able to, you know, give him that stage and let the people let people see what a what a consummate actor he is with very little makeup. Well, I, what, what, there's an interesting thing that happened on set. We were shooting the first chunk. We've shot Space Command in various chunks because we have a lower budget than uh, a studio film would have or a, st or a TV show. We had to be very clever in how we utilized our money so it was used effectively. So we shot uh, four days uh, of, of the first two-hour story and then came back several months later on some of the other sets we built and shot the rest of it. And so the first several days we were shooting all of Doug Jones's scenes and Mira Furlan and Bill Mummy and so forth and there was a lot of dialogue to cover. We were shooting eight to twelve pages a day. And Doug, was, Doug Jones was very nervous about being able to remember all the lines, even though we, with all of our actors, we had other actors with them to just run the lines when they weren't on, on you know, when we weren't shooting. Or, so or they, they were just, just right. on camera to, to, to throw the line. We said, look, we can edit, we can right. edit. Never well, worry about dropping a line because it will be thrown right back at you right. and we can cut into it. And well, when, when we stopped making them nervous, when they weren't nervous about it, they usually remembered their line. It was well, just nerves that would throw, send them up. Well, what I said to Doug was, I said, because he was nervous about getting the lines and doing all the lines, and I said, look, we, as Elaine said, we can, we can pick it up. It's not about the lines. I said, we're here for one purpose and one purpose only. I said, you have an amazing soul, and our, our job here is to show the audience your soul, and that's all we're here to do, and so don't worry about the lines. And the irony was from then on, he never blew a line, not once, and uh, so he was able to relax. But uh, he did a phenomenal job. His performance is terrific. And we're going to continue ongoingly to utilize his character because we have two viewpoint characters, what I call viewpoint characters, over the 150 years. Um, because most of the characters grow old and age and die and so forth. They have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But, but Doug Jones is a synthetic, a synthetic human. He's an android, a replicant. So he covers the entire 150 years as a viewpoint character. And Mira Furlan plays a human, but she's been genetically altered where she's very hard to kill, she's practically immortal, and so again, she'll be another viewpoint character over that time frame. And, uh, and her, character's also, her character has a daughter who hasn't been genetically altered, so she ages in a normal time frame. But, and Mira's also in a, 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 a gay marriage. She's married to a woman because, again, I want the world of Space Command to match the world I live in. And uh, it was very interesting when Sally Ride, Sally Ride was the first American female astronaut, and it was only when she died that they mentioned her longtime companion. And I said, well, why didn't everyone know that she was gay? I mean, why, why, where, are the, where are the gay women in science fiction? Where are the gay women in science? And it's, I think it's very important that we know that, that all these people that the world is what the world is, that it, it, it's inclusive, and I want Space Command to be inclusive. And so, uh, 
So that was, that was very fun to write that and have that in Space Command, as well as we have Muslim characters, we have all sorts of characters. And again, to present the commonality of humanity so that, so that we don't see people as the other, we see them as ourselves. What has this five-year pursuit taught you about um, dreams, making them happen, mm -hmm. um, setbacks, coming back again? What right. has it taught you about a journey of seeing something evolve and, mm -hmm. and come to life? Sure. Do you want me to take that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. All of my major projects, I know going in will take years. So for instance, when I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion, which was my first book, that took five years. From the month I started to the month the book came out. The book has been in print for over 30 years now. And so, and so and when I was writing it, someone said to me, well, when are you going to be done? And I said, I'll be done when it's right. And because I took the time to make it right, it stood the test of time. It lasted. The book I just wrote with Guillermo del Toro took me four years. And during, during all these periods, I'm working on multiple projects. I like to multitask. I like to do th many things at once. My new Space Command would be a massive project. The first two hours have, the first two hour story has 1900 visual effects shots. That's more than Star Wars. More, and a big episode of Battlestar Galactica would have 200, 200 visual effects shots. This has 1900 in the first two hours. So I knew that it would be incredibly ambitious. And, uh, but the steps in Space Command were raise the money to, to get the thing going, uh, continue to raise money by selling shares, shoot the first two hours, and then lock down an a, a powerful agency that then gives me the credibility to go and pitch the networks and sell the show. And so all of those things are very time consuming and it, it's, it's like a, a military campaign. So I knew it would take years. And, uh, and, but we're further along, we're closer to being toward the finish line than toward the beginning because we've shot, you know, two hours. Of the, we shot the entire first story, we shot 30 minutes of the second story, and, and now I'm pitching the series. And whoever buys it will have to pick up the first season, and that's 12 episodes. And uh, we're getting a very good response, we're, you know, but it comes from putting in the work. Because now we can say, this is what this is, this is what it looks like, here it is, here's the thing itself. And, uh, and that's a great, a great experience. There's a truism about almost any television show or film where everybody at the end said, if I had known it had been this hard, I never would have started it. <laughs> and, 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 but the, once you're in it, you can't turn around. Then they jump into another project, you know, as though they had no memory of what had just happened. Right. So I think you know, some of it is, it, it is kind of a wild horse, but when you're on, you're, you're not too eager to let go. But there are, there are twists and turns, and there are disappointments, and, and certain things you can't foresee. For instance, we brought aboard, there was a, a, a visual effects genius that I'd worked with many times in my career, uh, he had won an Emmy for Star Trek Voyager. He designed Babylon 5 and, and, and reinvented television, how visual effects were done in television. And he did the Star Trek episode uh, that I did with, with Elaine and I did with George Takei uh, that we did a few years ago that got nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula Awards. So I brought him aboard Space Command and he fell ill and, uh, and sadly died. His name was Ron Thornton and he was a genius. But sadly he didn't get to see, see us through to the finish line. And that's just what life does sometimes. You know, you never know. He, he, he was only, he was like 59. Very sad. And so, but again, you just try For, for anyone who wants to produce, I, 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 I'm more yes. producer than, than Mark. Mark yeah. is, you know. Elaine's better and wiser than me in every way. No, no, I'm a detail person. <laughs> but uh, I, I always say, you know, the thing is that some people feel things are going awry, that they're not producing well, which is, that's just what happens, that's being a producer. So I try sort of seeing producing anything is like it's a spinning ball. Right. It's spinning very quickly and things are flying off into space and your job as a producer is to tack back things as quickly as you can mm -hmm. and 
always make the assumption that the thing you're going to attack back on will be better than the thing that's whirled off into space. Mm -hmm. And you're not doing anything wrong, that's just the nature of production. Right. And if you have that headset and you're not like beating yourself up, you're just m moving as fast as you can and keeping your eye on the ball, you'll be a much happier producer. Right. And also, again, you know, Elaine, it's funny because, some, because Elaine and I have been together for 40 years and married for 39 and have worked together so much, uh, people assume we're very similar. But in reality, we're very, very different. Elaine, for one, is um, sane. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, she's calmer than I am. I'm a worrier. I'm very, my head is very, very busy. I beat myself up a lot. But I'm the one with the big vision. I'm the one who, well, well I'll, I'll take on something that's crazily big. For instance, when I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion, uh, it was two, I started that book two years after Rod Serling died. And I had graduated from UCLA with a degree in painting, sculpture, and graphic arts. I had sold one short story. I had never sold an article. I had never taken a journalism class. And I decided I was going to write a book about the Twilight Zone. Now, I had already heard that Carol Serling, Rod's widow, had turned down major journalists. So if I had asked 100 people what my chance of getting Rod Serling's widow to let me do a book about the Twilight Zone was, 100 people would have said, you have no chance. I was 22 years old. But it's not a majority opinion. Your fate is not a majority opinion. You outvote the world if you decide you're going to do something. And so then it just became strategic. It's like, how do I go about doing this? So what I did was I, uh, I, I had met one writer from the Twilight Zone, one writer from the Twilight Zone, George Clayton Johnson. I met him when I was 16 years old at a science fiction convention, and we became friends. So I interviewed him about the Twilight Zone. He connected me up with two other people who worked on the show, and I interviewed them. And over a three-month period, I interviewed 30 people who worked on the show. Then I went to Carol Serling. And by then, I knew a lot about the show. And I felt very confident that I could do this book. And so I went to her house. It was Rod's house. It was exactly as Rod had left it. His Emmys were there, six Emmys. There was one room just for the trophies. And so six Emmys, three Hugos, the Peabody Award, all that stuff. His dog was still there, the senile Irish setter. Um, it all, his office was intact exactly as he'd left it. And, um, and I remember standing in this huge living room with Carol Sterling sitting on the couch. And for some reason, I was standing. And I told her what I had in mind. And I could envision that future of my completing the book successfully as clearly as I see you. And I spoke very convincingly and I knew what I was talking about because I'd done my research. And, uh, and, she, and she, she talked to some of the people I'd interviewed and the people she knew and trusted and they clearly gave me a good uh, bill, of, bill of health, a good report, because she came back and she said, okay, you've got full access to everything. And so I spent several years crawling through Rod's attic and in his garage there were the 16 millimeter film, film prints in these big film cans of the Twilight Zone episodes. And I would take home a, st a stack like this and put them on the projector. They had the original commercials, the coming attraction spots. Now, some of these prints had never even been through a projector. And, uh, and I, I wrote the book. And so, so that, but it was a crazily ambitious project as, was, as is Space Command. And uh, I actually enjoy big challenges. It's but you had world enough in time as a test Run. Yeah, well, you know, that was another crazy thing to do. It was, um, that was sort of the test run. As Elaine said, it was uh, basically, uh, I was at a science fiction convention, and this is just when Star Trek, and when Enterprise was kind of fading, it was dying down, the fans hadn't really embraced it, and, uh, and this is before J.J. Abrams said he was going to do the Star Trek movie. And so this, I was on a panel for Star Trek, because I wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And uh, someone from the audience said, well, what's the future of Star Trek? And Walter Koenig, who had played Chekhov, gave this answer. And it was a crazy answer. And it was so crazy that I, afterwards I said, tell me all about this. And I talked to him for about an hour. 
and he told me that there were a group of fans in upstate New York who had built a full-size copy of all the original Star Trek sets from the blueprints, and they were shooting their own Star Trek episodes and putting them online, and they were getting a larger audience than Enterprise was getting on UPN. And he was about to fly to New York and be in an episode starring himself as Chekhov and written by DC Fontana, Dorothy Fontana, who had written and story edited the original Star Trek series. So that night I went online and they had an episode of, uh, that they had done, which was a sequel to an episode the original Star Trek had done called The Doomsday Machine. And it had William Wyndham, who'd been in that, the guest star in that episode. And it was, it was great fun. And uh, so I th a friend of mine years ago had come up with a great Sulu episode. They were going to bring Star Trek back in the 70s, Paramount was. And uh, then Star Wars came out, and after a year of development, they made the movie instead of the series they'd been developing. And so my friend had pitched to them a great Star Trek episode starring Sulu, and it didn't get made. And both he and I had written for Star Trek The Next Generation. He was an Emmy winner, and I called him, and I said, you want to write this episode? And he said, sure, you know, the two of us. And uh, so I called the boys in upstate New York, and I said, hey, we want to do this Sulu episode, um, and I'd want to direct it, because I'd always wanted to direct. And they said, sure. And I said, but we have to shoot high def. They'd been shooting mini-DV. And they said, yeah, well, if you can get the cameras. And I said, okay. And then I went to George Takea, and I sat in his kitchen, his living room, actually, dining room. And, uh, and I gave him, I typed up the three-page outline of what the story would be. And I said, you never got the great Sulu episode you deserved. Uh, this is it. I need you to tell me if you'll do it. So he sat there, and he read the three pages, and he said, I'm in. So we spent six months building our production team. We shot nine days in upstate New York on the Enterprise sets. We built Sulu's ship, the... the uh, um, the, um, what's it called, the uh, Sulu ship, the Excelsior? Yes, it's the Excelsior. Um, so we, we built Sulu's ship, the Excelsior, here in L.A. So we shot two days here in L.A. And one day in Florida with the effects team. It was a solid year of post-production, 700 visual effects shots. It's called Star Trek World Enough in Time. You can actually watch it on my website, markzikri.com, in its entirety. And it got nominated for the Hugo and Nebula, uh, which are the two top awards in science fiction. First time any independent project had ever been nominated for those awards. We did it without a studio or a network. We did it for under $100,000. And, uh, and it looked as good as any network show you'd ever see. And, uh, and I showed it, at, I said to George when we were shooting, uh, a year from now, uh, you and I will be at the World Science Fiction Convention in Japan. We'll be showing this to an audience of several thousand people. And at the end, we'll answer questions. I'll be speaking in English. You'll be speaking in Japanese because he's fluent. And, uh, and I said, a year later, we'll be nominated for the Hugo. And all of that stuff came true. And, and when we showed it in Japan, it was 3,000 people in the audience. And we got a standing ovation. People were in tears at the end because it was so moving. And, uh, and so, you know, so I, I had that vision. I was, I was speaking a future that I made happen. And, <clears throat> but the fact that I was able to do that without a studio or a network showed that I could create something without that infrastructure. And that showed me that I could do Space Command, uh, and that, that gave me the credibility to pull it off. Oh, it, that all sounds so smooth in the telling. There were quite a few bumpy bits as we were doing this. Yes. The, 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 the team um, got very worried about high def, the initial team, because they were very worried that, th that it would show a multitude of flaws in their sets, which it did not. I mean, the, their sets great. were beautiful. Yeah. But there was a lot of concern about high def, which they then used from then on. But um, there, there were many, and the, the, the acting of the initial team who had put it together, they were fans. Right. Uh, they, they needed a little bit of polishing for some of them. Some of them were pros, some of them were not. And they were, they were good enough to be enthusiastic about actor camp, which we set up. So we, we had an actor camp, but there were a lot of little... Well, we rehearsed with them. We, we rehearsed we did, with we them. We did yeah. improv. We, did, we wanted to see who, who had the strongest acting chops of the, of the, of the actors. And, and they were, were very course. open to, uh, to learning. So that the, the one who was playing Captain Kirk, the fellow who was playing Captain Kirk, um, who was 
okay, he was fine, you know, but, but uh, at one point he was like really eager, he was working and he got applauded after one scene that he had yeah. done. And then he was really, you know, with the, with the learning curve. So, um, but, but there was a lot of tension, you know, people were being pressed to come to a, to a really high level. And, uh, and that's where I was, you know, my job was being the HHDH, which was the hothead dehotifier, yes. when people were starting to get a little bit tense. Well, it can get and, very uh, intense on, on a shoot. It, it can, know. and he was just driving it, driving it, and driving it. Sure. So um, it was, and the final day, you, you should talk about George Decay on that final day. Well, it was just, he was just amazing. We shot a very, very long day, and the last take he did was one take, and it was perfect. And How many hours was that? Uh, 20, something like Like a 20 hour day, Crazy. and he was up there, Phenomenal. Uh, after a 20-hour day, never a complaint. Yeah. And we well, had spent um, months lifting weights and getting in shape. He lost 15 pounds to do. And he the wasn't in look. bad shape. No. He got into great, great shape. shape. And yeah. then he was Phenomenal. then on cue after like a 20-hour day. He was standing on that stage on the transporter on the transporter yeah. stage with a single tear tracking down his face exactly on cue. Well, that was, was appropriate to the scene. It wasn't that he was you no, know, no, crying because no. he'd been working for 20 no, years. No, it was on cue. He was just yeah. he was just phenomenal. So, yeah. so there was a tremendous pressure. So I mean, there are a lot of stories, but um, so it, it wasn't easy. It's, it's never easy. Well, you but have to be crazily driven. Yes. You have to just be the engine that doesn't stop. And, uh, and that's when you have a calling. That's when you, I mean, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if you're doing it because you want to prove something to your parents or you want to, you know, as I said, make a lot of money or you want to just kind of do crap work and have that somehow slide by, those are all the wrong reasons. You know, there's a, there's a friend of mine, his name's Frank Spotness. He was executive producer of the X-Files. He created and ran Man in the High Castle, and he's got four shows on the air right now. And he said, uh, good enough is never good enough. And I absolutely believe that. But with these fans, they were like really driven. They were doing it out of love. And, uh, and even if they get angry at each other, you know, there's never enough time, there's never enough resources. You're always trying to protect your department against other departments, but you're trying to do your best job. But um, but there's still, for all of the, the tensions, they were a delight to work with because they were doing what they loved. Mm -hmm. Thinking back to something a mentor said to the two of you individually, maybe even before you met one another, sure. what was it and what is it? what statement was that or mantra that never left you? Could be Ray Bradbury, could be... Sure. I, I, it's a funny thing, but the thing that most affected me uh, was a, a script doctor, a very good script doctor that I had. And, and, uh, and there was a script I'd written. I mean, it was one of my favorite scripts, ultimately. But, but she said, this is brilliant. I absolutely love it. Now, here's the notes. <laughs> and, and, but, but the fact that she said that I was brilliant and that she loved it, I thought, well, what the heck with a few notes? I'm brilliant and I love it. So I think, you know, crazy flattery you know, I realized sort of the, the weight of, of allowing somebody to be feel special and be special with crazy flattery that all those notes seemed like nothing. So, you know, one of the biggest, biggest pieces of advice was that, hey, you know, what, what you're doing has super value. Now here's the work. And just going on that thing where I was allowed to have super value at the top of the journey um, really got me through as though it was nothing, those notes. Mm -hmm. um. In terms of, <coughs> of me, the mentors, what, what they've told me, you know, it's funny because, you know, the, the mentors really who've guided me have been, you know, Rod Serling, Ray Bradbury, Guillermo del Toro. And what really inspired me was the fact that these are guys who just come from enormous enthusiasm, creative enthusiasm. And Ray's, one thing Ray said to me was, he said, don't look outside yourself, look within. 
And so it's again finding, it's funny, there was one time when he and I were sitting together and I said, I just figured out what business you're in. I said, it's not writer. I said, you're in the Ray Bradbury business. And he said, yes, that's exactly right. And what he, so what he was doing was creating something that no one else could create. And he told me that he spent, he wrote every day for 10 years before he wrote a single line, a single word that was uniquely his. And then one day he sat down and he wrote the words, the lake. And he wrote a short story based on the time when he was a little boy, when he was eight years old, he and a little girlfriend who was seven went swimming in Lake Michigan and he came out and she never did. She drowned. And it was a story about her coming back as a ghost. And he told me that when he finished the story, tears were streaming down his face and he knew he'd written something that no one else could have written. It came specifically from his experience and his soul. And he said it took, a, it, and it took another two years of writing every day before he could write something again that was uniquely his. And then he got to where he could do it again and again and again, and he became Ray Bradbury because he was determined to do that. And so th I thought that was a great lesson to say, okay, what are you creating? What, what can you create that isn't something that's just an imitation of what others are doing, but that's unique to you, that no one else could have created, that you create something fresh in the world that's truthful and meaningful, and, uh, and then you know you've done something worth doing. So that's, that's been a great inspiration to me. It is because so many people, because they're so afraid of being hurt, they, they do the safe thing. So that somebody says, that's not very good. They say, oh, I know, it was a piece of trash. I was just doing what everybody else was doing. So right. you do put yourself out for a far greater vulnerability, but then... With something original. Something, I yeah. mean, if you do something original, but then to not do so is, is slowly, slowly slow, uh, soul-killing. Yeah, say that quickly. I, I, I failed <laughs> to say it quickly. I, I, I tripped all over myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, it, it is. It's like being worn down by the ocean. You know, yeah. a sea of it, it just does. And so one of the things, like as an example, when we worked together for TV, if we got a, a note, it wouldn't matter if it was a dumb note or not. Um, sometimes the notes were great, but sometimes the notes were dumb. And we made a pact that no matter how dumb the note felt initially, we would not hand in that draft until we were able to work that note in in a way which made it better. So every draft had to be better than the previous draft. And so no matter how challenging the notes were, we would find the way to do that. And my, fr my friend Doug Hayes, who was one of the great directors of The Twilight Zone, he did Eye of the Beholder and The After Hours and The Howling Man, many other episodes. He, uh, he was also a very good writer. And he said, when you get notes, the executives giving the notes are often not writers. And so the note, the solution they're offering may not work, but the, there's a concern under the note. There's something that's not working for them. And what they're saying the solution is may not be the right solution. And never put in something in your script that doesn't work. But you have to look at what the concern is. You have to figure out what the concern is and address that. And if you come up with an alternative that does work, they'll be satisfied even if the solution they offered isn't the one that you utilized as long as the concern is addressed. And um, that was a great piece of wisdom. So you, you really want to maintain a pride of workmanship mm. and not just say, oh, you know, you never, you never toss it off. Firstly, that's no. that you, you don't do that to the audience. You give it, you give it your best, you, no matter what. Because it represents you and you make it represent you and you, you see it even on people on like an assembly lines where, where you develop something you don't care versus something you care about and you take sure. a little bit of, you're allowed a little bit of pride in what you do, mm -hmm. which I think is just critical to the way humans work. And so, yes, we, we, we put up that fight, but it, like I always remember, just as a, you know, when we're teaching, because it was a, a woman who shared with me, she had a, a, an action piece, these man and woman in this action thing, and it was like nonstop action, nonstop action, going and going and going. And the woman said, who was the executive, well, it sort of drags in the second act, it really drags. 
And she flared, but knew enough to keep it to herself. And she said, well, let me look at that, that it was dragging in the second act. And say, how could it drag? It's like there was nonstop action. And then it hit her on the way home that it wasn't that it was nonstop action. It's that in act one, uh, she had not set up us caring sufficiently about the leads and the outcome for those leads for us to care what kind of threat they were facing because we didn't care. And so she said, okay, well, she's going to like deepen the characters and much more focus on their need and our investment in their journey. She's going to slow down the second act, still keeping it exciting, but she's going to slow it down so that we really know what the struggle is about. And the reason that they weren't, that it seemed slow was we just didn't care. And the, the executive then said, this is much better, now it really rolls along. Now she couldn't analyze why she didn't care in the second act, but she was dead on. By the second act we were getting restive and simply didn't care because we didn't know who was in the struggle and so why would we care? So sometimes they don't communicate what's really going on, they just know that it's falling flat. Yes, yes it's exactly. Not, it's, it's not their responsibility to make the script work, it's your responsibility. And so they've hired you because you're a professional writer. And, uh, and so they, I mean, everyone, you know, you know, executives get a bad rap. Most of them are very smart and very talented and very driven and they're in the business because they love it. And everyone wants a script to work. Everyone wants a movie to work. Nobody wants to create something that fails. And so, but it's very challenging. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to make anything good. And so, but, but if you decide that you're going to give everything your best effort, that you're going to bring everything you've got to every job, that's a good starting point. And, uh, and so that's been true in my whole career. I started in animation, and whether it was writing Smurfs or Space Command, I mean, it, it's, uh, and I don't, don't just write things with an S starting the, the title, but, um, but you know, you, you, you say, okay, I'm going I'm to bring everything I've got to this. And that, that gives you a certain professional um, integrity. And yes, the, the executives, they, they're paid to get a sense of a story, but you're paid because you have the a analysis mm. in your brain as right. to, okay, there's something wrong, I have to figure out what is wrong specifically, but they have picked up that something is wrong and they're probably accurate. But, some, but sometimes you'll need to have, that's where it's good to have friends who are very talented, so that if you're stuck, you can call them and say, look, can we just bat this thing around a little bit? I'm, I've, I've got to figure this out. And, and Elaine is my sounding board, so for instance, and sometimes it'll be like, okay, this works, but how can we make this better? How can we go deeper? How can it be more meaningful? And that's a very important. What's the biggest obstacle or setback you feel that each of you has faced personally in your careers? Yeah. You don't have that's to be specific uh, in terms no, of no, what project, fine, but just in terms setback. of how you work through it. Uh, I think the, it, it's, it's rarely a setback. It's, the, it's that you get tired. Sometimes you get tired. And uh, when you get tired, um, then things start to hit you and you cannot see a way around, you know. Whereas if you've got a good night's sleep, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. I think it's the wear and tear, and that's where you really have to say, uh, never get into this life alone, you know. Mm -hmm. get, get, you always have somebody to back you up, a friend, or, or you know, in this case, we have, have a spouse who's a friend. Well, but, we also have the table. When yeah. We have, yeah. yeah, we have the table, which we can talk about in one second, but the whole thing is to say, this whole thing about rugged individualism and by your bootstraps, yeah. that's just not the way people operate. You know, it's one of my favorite songs is Lean On Me, and you know, and, you know, and someday I'll need someone to lean on. And I, I think that's really true. So it's, it's yes. the day-to-day -day 
grind. You know, the, the, you, you always you hope for something. Sometimes his hopes are higher than mine, so I don't have his big setbacks mm -hmm. because I'm always a little more wary than he is. And he'll mm -hmm. say, oh, this is great. Oh, dear, no, no. So it's like a <laughs> much, much, you know, it's a bigger hit when it goes down. But, but still, it's that, you know, if you don't expect to, if you, you know there's somebody you can turn to and say, I'm just down today. It's mm. just, I just had a bad day. And someone can say, it's, it's okay, you, you've got the, you know, somebody can just say, it's okay, keep going. That that's the big, um, I'd say just dealing it with it with other people is the trick and don't, don't lock it down. You were going to talk about the table. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we run this round table of writers and directors and actors and producers and editors and composers, etc. That's several thousand people. We've been running it every Thursday for 24 years, and it's to create a compassionate um, community in Hollywood. And now we have offshoots all over the country. And again, it was because I wanted to create the Hollywood I wanted to live in. And, and Hollywood can be very corrosive, it can wear you down. You have to really be very careful of who you're giving judgment to, who's in judgment of you, where you internalize that. Because if, you, if it's people who are hateful, who are toxic, who are cruel, um, that can destroy you. And so you have, to, you have to surround yourself with people who are loving, people who are kind. And uh, it's, it's hugely important. And um, because at the end of the day, you have to build a life. The life is, is ultimately more important than this script or this project or any of it. You have to have a life where you're loved and you're loving, where you have, a, have people who, as Elaine said, when you falter, will be there for you. And again, it has to be, you know, lean on me is good if it's, if it's going both ways. It isn't like, well, let me drain your life force and leave you an empty husk, you know, which is what some people do. You know, and so you have to make sure that it's, it's reciprocal. And that's what we, uh, with the round table that we run, that's what we teach. And even the classes we teach where we mentor people, the, what, what we often say is, uh, your career will be defined by two poles, what you stand for and what you won't stand for. But you have to know what those two things are. And, and a lot of people, uh, particularly actors, actors can end up being very successful but feeling very empty because they're doing roles that are not, not in alignment with what they themselves believe. And so you have to f decide, well, what do I believe? What is meaningful to me? And then how can I do work that speaks from that and speaks to that? And, uh, because they can, yeah. uh, uh, there's a habit of executives who are not artists to sort of project who the hell are you, you know? And it's very hard to answer that, but if you know what you stand for, like if you say, I, I, what I take a stand for, the message that I'm going to give is that as long as you keep trying, as long as you're in the game, then you're a hero. You know, let, let's say that's what you want to stand for. And if, if, if I say, well, who the hell are you? You say, I'm the person who stands for this message, and it's an important message. And they can't get to you in that way if you really are clear on what you stand for. Mm -hmm. But, but it, sometimes it's always hard. And the good thing about like at the table, let's say you've made f they, you, you advertise, I made five calls, and it's five no's. But, but then you're getting applause for having picked up the phone five times and that you're going to make five more calls the next day. You get applauded mm -hmm. for, for going, the, you know, keep, you're going the game, you're, you're still fighting on. And I think that we all sort of need that to say, hey, I made five calls, I'm going to make five calls tomorrow. It's okay, that's what it takes. It takes 100 calls to get the one yes, but I'm going to make those 100 calls. I'm going to get that yes. And it's very interesting if you track how people have struggled that my favorite films, if you, you listen to my, the filmmakers, well, they, it took them 10 years to get it mounted. It took, you know, lots of insults. It took people, you know, battering them down, but they ended up making something brilliant, which a lot of people didn't see, but they saw, and then they gifted me with it. Yes. So um, I think that 
it's more realistic to say, hey, let's, let's applaud each other for the effort. Mm. But, and also, you know, there was a question that was asked earlier about, well, you know, Space Command's taken five years so far. <laughs> and, um, but the lovely part is we now have a completed rough cut of the first two hours, and we're, we're generating the visual effects on the first two hours now. And so we get to watch the story beginning to end. And it's a wonderful story, and the, and the actors are, are quite wonderful, and the performances are great, and the story is meaningful. So that's very heartening as well. Once you, there's a very interesting dividing line between when you, have, when you have the footage and when you don't. Before you shoot, before you have the, the footage in the can, everything can conspire to have the thing not exist. So if you stop before you've actually shot the film or the pilot or whatever it is, uh, then it has in, it, it's, in, it's in great danger of never existing. The moment you shoot, the moment you've got it in the can, then it simply becomes bringing, bringing assets to bear to finish. Then it's just about visual effects, color correction, sound design. Those are very doable, but you've got the story. It's, it exists. It's like if you write a novel, if you finish the novel, at least there's a book that's beginning to end, you know, and then you can refine it. It's no very, one will know how long you took to write it. Yes, to write it. To write it. But it's, it's very important to finish what you start. Because first of all, if you finish what you start, you know you can finish what you start. And, and, and again, another enemy is perfectionism. You don't want to have perfectionism stop you from starting or stop you from finishing. You know, it's very important to finish things and then refine. Uh, Ray Bradbury, who, who was my mentor for over 10 years, uh, his, when he wrote, he would describe it as vomit, then mop, which means you write, you pour it out, then you refine it, but you start by pouring it out without judgment. And uh, in, in, his, in his youth, what he would do is he would write, he would sit down on a Monday, write an entire short story in one sitting, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he would refine it, Friday he would mail it off, and then Monday he would start all over again. He was writing 50 stories a year and an amazing output. And actually, he, he kept the same writing schedule for 70, over 70 years. He was an amazing man and, uh, and a, great, a great inspiration. Um, I was very lucky that I got to know him. And I'd go over to his house uh, once a month for over 10 years. And we just talk about life and art and career. And, uh, and I'm actually writing a book now called My Ray Bradbury that's about my friendship with Ray because he told me many things that were never, um, never in print, never published. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share that. And of course, a few key members of our team told us not to start shooting on our start time for, for Space Command. Oh, well, yeah. Well, that's, you know, again, sometimes you have to be very careful of listening to people who are faint of heart. Because a big part of finishing anything is having the daring to start. You know, because again, once something is in existence, once it's in motion, momentum is enormously helpful. Uh, because then people see the, the train is moving, and then they often want to jump on board because something's actually happening. You know, a lot of people, they're all talk. A lot of people flake. You really have to look, at it, look around you and say, okay, who finishes what they start? Who actually is serious about this? And affiliate with those people because there's an energy that leads toward success and there's an energy that leads toward failure. And you really have to be mindful of that and observant. And again, this is why I've surrounded myself with you know, I, I, last night at the table, I was mentioning that I collect showrunners. Now, the showrunner is the executive producer who runs a network show. But I do collect these people. I do get to know, like, if someone's doing a show that I love, I'll reach out to them. I'll, I'll go to an event. I'll meet them. And then we form a friendship. And a lot of these people are my, my mentors. They're my advisors. They're, they're my friends. And it goes both ways. So they'll ask me for advice. It's funny. I was having lunch a few weeks with a dear friend of mine who's run a number of shows. He's also a very talented director and writer. And he had uh, just sold a pilot 
and he, was, he just couldn't get the story to work. So he said, listen, is it okay if I ask you and just walk through this with you? And so we talked, and he said, this is, this is what the story is, but here's all the things I don't know. And I said, oh, well, that's easy. And I just said, okay, here's how it goes. And within about, I don't know, 20 minutes, we totally worked the thing out. But, that, but he, you know, he had the courage and the confidence in himself to be able to say, I don't know how this goes, and can you help me? And it, he's not paying me, I'm not being hired, and that's fine, it's a two-way street. That was the great thing about Shakespeare in Love. Yes, what the... Well, Shakespeare went to another writer to ask, to, to work through a story point in that's the funny. film, Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, that's very and funny. And so we both you know, really like that story point, because any writer knows that you end up frequently bouncing Bouncing something off other people. Yeah. Yes, <clears throat> because again, it's not about being perfect, it's about getting the job done. When you finish a screenplay, what is the standard protocol of steps you'll go through after uh, it's done? Well, I don't know. Go well, the first, thing is to, the first thing is to figure out when it's done. Yes. And, and so after you finish the first draft, uh, it's very sad when, you've, when you're new to the job and you finish your first draft and you think it's done. Mm -hmm. And of course, the first draft, you're not even close yeah. to being done. Yeah, the, the, the end is often the beginning. Yes, it, it is. Yeah. But um, so the first thing that you do is you put it aside for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you reread it. And I tend to give it like, th I read it through several times. For one, I read it through to see, does the plot have drive? I'm just focusing on the plot. Mm -hmm. Are there any big holes? Is this, does the piping go together? Mm -hmm. The next thing is I'll read it through each character and say, am I following the journey of this character? Oh my gosh, how did she find that out? Why is she reacting to something she was never told? You know, things like that. You find out those things or, um, Suddenly, you uh, you know you, you lose sight of the character. They're suddenly kind of falling flat, and so you start to say, okay, what is the investment in their journey? You, you clarify each character. You make sure that they're consistent throughout, and their voice right. is consistent throughout. And the final pass is a theme pass, where let's say your theme is you you really can't do anything completely alone. You can't live your life alone and lead a productive life. And then you'll be going along and suddenly uh, another scene says, oh, you should bootstrap yourself up. And you, well, that's a valid thing to say, you know, stand on your own two feet. But if it's in the same movie, you're suddenly jarred. Mm. So the ideal, you can't do it every time, but the ideal is to advance, in each scene, you advance plot and character and theme. Each scene should advance those three things. And if a particular scene seems to be falling flat, usually one of those things has been left out. Mm. And so, uh, so I read for those three things. And when that feels pretty good and I put it aside, then what we try and have is like a reading, where, you know, we sit around the table and you read it, and then you hear things that you hadn't heard before. So basically it's that you start testing the waters with it and uh, at first it's like difficult because you think you've finished, but if you have a little bit of experience, then the fifth draft is far much more fun than the first draft because you start to discover things, you start to uh, develop resonances and, and connective tissue, and you've done the plumbing, the real hard work is done, or let's say the technical work, and so that's where the fun work starts, where you can really hone moments that you hadn't seen in the beginning. And so I think, for me, it's never done until final post-edit, mm. because you're still finding things and seeing things. Mm -hmm. So uh, you it, it, and the actors are discovering things, and you discover things in the editing process. Mm -hmm. So done is a very tricky word. Well, well, well. Also, there's uh, there's another factor is you have to make sure with the script that the main character is driving it. So in other words, it, you, you have to be very careful that the that the supporting characters aren't the main character. That the main character isn't um, passive. Very important. 
And also there's always a question of, of am I writing this script to sell it or am I writing this script to make it? Those are two totally different objectives. And, um, and there's also a reading draft. So in other words, with some scripts I've written, I'll write them where they're entertaining reads. So in other words, the, the description is as entertaining as the dialogue because someone's going to be sitting and reading it and you want them to be entertained and delighted and ideally buy the script. But there's other drafts that you're writing to shoot. Like for instance with Space Command, um, I know I'm going to be shooting it, that Elaine and I are going to be directing it and that we're producing it. So then it's about, well, okay, um, how are we going to build this? How are we going to design this? Who's, who am I hiring to do this role? So I'm writing it for, for one of the things I do is whenever I write a script, I cast it in my mind. If, it, if it's certain actors I know I'm going to be hiring, I'll, I'll, I'll cast them. Or sometimes it'll be actors who are just very distinctive in my head or, or people from my life who are very distinctive in my head. And then I'll print out little photos of them and I'll put them in a strip and I'll put them on the computer in front of me so that when I'm writing I can look at that person's face and I can hear them in my head. And, uh, and that, make, that makes it come alive. But, um, but, but often when I'm writing a, nowadays, see I have, right now in my life I have zero inter interest in development. I'm not writing scripts to be put into development and never made. I'm not writing scripts. I'm, 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 I'm here to make stuff. That's wh and so that's why I did Space Command the way I've done it and gone directly to my audience. So for me it's very much, okay, we, you know, we're going to be shooting this. So how do, we, how do we make the costumes? How do we build the sets? What's going to make these look interesting? This is where my art background comes in very handy because I love working with visual designers uh, and, and all of that. And, uh, but like one of the things we have, the, a challenge we have right now is for the second film, we've shot 30 minutes of it, we have another, the rest of it to shoot, and that takes place on an alien spaceship, uh, a sleeper ship. 300 people have been abducted by an alien creature and put in hibernation. So it's like, okay, well that's interesting because first of all, how do we do it so it looks different from anything we've ever seen? How can we utilize perhaps what we have already? And how can we make it look very, very interesting? So. We, uh, we recently put some of our, well, our sets in storage so we're not paying the overhead on a, on a soundstage that, you know, because we had, we had our own physical studio for several years. And uh, so I saw we have a cave set. And in the first Space Command um, film, the first two-hour story, that cave set was used for a mining operation on Ceres, which is a planetoid in the asteroid belt. It was used for Mars colony uh, and it was used um, I guess that, is that and then in the second film we used it for ice caverns on Mercury. This it's ice because there's actually a, a a crater on Mercury that it's so deep that there's ice at the bottom of it. This is real. This is a true scientific fact. The sun never melts the ice, and so I posited having a city made of ice. Mercury has a lot of iron on it, so it's a, so we have this religious uh, commune that mines the iron and ships it to the outer planets, and so they're they're there and they have a city in the ice. So we used our cave set for the ice cavern. So I thought, well, you know, we could take that cave set, turn it sideways, paint it black, run LED lights along it, put oblong uh, amber pieces of uh, lucite in it, have that be the sleeper cells, do forced perspective to make it look like there's 300 of them, and bang, we've got an alien spaceship. So now we're starting to think about how to design that. But, so. but, but in terms of like the writing, I mean, what he said, what was important in terms of the hero, that it has to be the hero's journey. Yes. Because people make a lot of mistake with their leads. They, they try and make them too shiny bright, and so they're boring, and all we want to see is the villain, right? We've all seen those movies. And, uh, and you start giving too many of the fun lines to your subsidiary characters. Right. And you don't really think through, one, the power of the lead, and really say, okay, what if he were actually human and not all polished and perfect? Mm -hmm. Because we all secretly hate those people, right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, what really is the struggle? What are, the, there's the external stuff, but you also have to give them the internal stuff. 
you know, what, what are the insecurities, what are the demons, what, you know, all these things. And are we really going to, is that journey core where we really get on board with this guy? And do we really like this man and have his journey? So, I mean, uh, you, I, I fell afoul of like giving my, my little side characters too much fun, like with the one that the script doctor gave me all these notes. Um, there was one little character where I gave him so much fun stuff and it kept slipping more and more over to the hero, more and more, until finally when my agent read it, he said, I really like it, but what's this character doing in here? I said, oh, nothing anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the, my you favorite character was, yeah. was plucked out right. because uh, he didn't really belong because it wasn't about him, it wasn't about his journey, it was about the struggle of the two leads mm -hmm. in this particular piece. So some of it is to really say, what, what am I trying to say and why have I selected this character to take the journey with and what will I love about him? Right. One of my favorite films, uh, which many people haven't seen because I'm older, is a thing called Marty. And the hero was a, an ugly butcher, like the writer. He, the writer saw himself as ugly, you know, from New York. Petty Chayefsky. Oh, mm -hmm. And uh, he wasn't, but that's how he perceived himself. And, uh, and so what is, the, what is the heroic journey of this character? The heroic journey of this character is simply, in the end, to stand against peers and family, to go on a, a quest for love, mm -hmm. because he just wants someone to love him. Mm -hmm. And people are under, you know, mom doesn't want to be left alone, and the friends don't want to be, you know, uh, feel like losers because their friend is married. Well-meaning people, but in the end, they were like standing, uh, in opposition to him finding someone that he really loved. Right. And, and we can see that it took immense courage to stand against your peers and to stand against your family. So it was small, but it's huge, it's core. And so I found that an immensely touching piece that this man who is past marriageable age uh, fought to find something that he really, really wanted. And, but, but he was full of flaws. He was afraid, he, he was sway, easily swayed, he, you know, he, he, he was you know, easily embarrassed, but he was a sweet and honorable man, and he found love, and I found that an extremely heroic piece of writing. Mm -hmm. So, Because we have our own studio now, the final draft of the script is actually the final cut of the film. So we basically will write something, bring together our actors, shoot it, and then refine it in, in the cut. And so we love the, the fact that that allows us to refine the story, refine the script, refine what we had in mind. And, uh, and often there'll be discoveries along the way. So we, we love the, the entire part of the process. And a big part of it is just when you meet brilliant, wonderful people, um, collect them, absorb them, have them become part of your team. Uh, that's what I've done with actors. That's what I've done with our editor, who's terrific. You know, we just find incredibly talented people. And it's not about... Uh, as Elaine said earlier, you can't be a one-man band. If you were going to just, if you wanted to be the end-all and the be-all, be a novelist, because they can sit in their room, they can write, they can be these pale, sad creatures. But if you're in film and TV, you, it takes hundreds of people, and then you need to really be a leader, have a vision, be kind to your people, be supportive of them. Uh, if you're a monster, if you're a nightmare, life's too short. You know, because you want to treat people well. Your, your actors create a world, your DP yes. creates a world, yes. your set designer creates a world. Right, but, uh, but one thing I want to mention yes. is our job as directors. See, Elaine is a better director than I am, so uh, you know, she's an actor's director, and so we, we're very strong together as directors. We don't disagree on the set because we, see, we have the same vision, but the, our job is to make a safe place for our actors so they can be vulnerable, they, vulnerable, they can be in the moment. Uh, our job is to give them the, the, the room to do what they need to do, which is find honest, honesty and authenticity. And uh, so we see very much eye to eye on that. Yeah, they have a very hard job because they have to 
you know, it, when you're writing, you, you have to like say, oh, this woman was betrayed, and you have to live through that betrayal once. But you expect your performer to do it over and over and over and really feel it and really be in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really hard. You have to be like uh, an Olympian. You have to be mm -hmm. trained, have your emotions trained like an Olympic runner that you can keep summoning that over and over. It's, it's terrible to have an actor sobbing and say, hold for sound, hold for sound. I mean, that's a terrible thing, but, but a really well-trained actor yeah. can do that, can pull it out over Well, that's over. why actors have to be in, in class. They have to be working on their craft. They have to be able to turn it on like that to be able to do it over and over and over. So, yeah, but yeah. You had said something earlier about when you did the Space Command auditions and you really saw people own the character. Mm -hmm. What is that when you see, maybe you don't see it at first in that same actor for that character, and then the, there's a switch. What is that owning? How do you Well, tell? the owning of the character is, is that they seem to be profoundly and deeply inside the character. And um, for actors, they know about the thing about uh, where either you're, um, you know, either you're looking outside at yourself and saying, I, I'm, this character's supposed to be angry. I think I'll clench my fists and I'll tighten my mouth and I'll be angry. And that always comes across as phony. But uh, when, a when somebody owns it, it doesn't matter what they're doing with their body or their face. Inside, they're very angry. And one take, it may come out loud, one quietly. But the camera really sees your eyes, right. sees it in your eyes. Well, they're and in so the moment. They're, 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 they're actually feeling yeah. it completely in the moment. And that's when you say they're owning it because the, what they're doing with, I mean, their hands will naturally tense. But it doesn't mean they'll be doing this kind of thing. It, it means that uh, you will, when they feel it, you feel it. When they don't feel it, you don't feel it, at least not in the same way. And I've had you know, I, I've tested that out with actors and, and classes. We'll, okay, say, okay, when, 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 do, when were they feeling it? Mm -hmm. And the class will say, at this time they were feeling it. We'll go to the actor and say, when were you feeling it? It was always <coughs> the same. Mm -hmm. the, the camera sees when, when, it, when it's real for you, and that's owning the character. And you, you often bring, a, a really fine actor brings a tremendous amount of their own background and experience to it. So they not just own it but they, the moment, but they own it in complex ways. There's sense memories and Years, and if they're supposed to be betrayed, they remember when they were two, somebody mocking them and not them not be able to stop the tears. And all of that actually comes across in the moment on, on screen. Can we go back to the first screenplay ever sold? Mm -hmm. and how sure. did you do it? What was the process? Mm, the, well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, people talk about, talk to me about, you know, how do you break into Hollywood? And I, I always say I'm like a burglar working in a neighborhood where I have to break in and break in and break in. It's a continual process. And uh, the first script, you know, uh, the first script I sold, interestingly enough, was I, um, again, this, this speaks toward gravitating toward your heroes. When I was an undergraduate at UCLA, I was an art student, and uh, one of my great heroes was going to be teaching an adult education class at UCLA. His name was Theodore Sturgeon. He was a writer from the original Star Trek. He did two great episodes of Star Trek, Shore Leave and Amok Time. And he also had written novels and short stories. And I'd grown up reading him and idolizing him. He was a brilliant writer. And so as an undergraduate, I was forbidden to take adult education classes. And I thought, well, you know, screw that. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So I took the class. And Ted uh, Sturgeon became one of my great friends and mentors. I was 19 years old. and. Uh, and his teaching assistant was a, a young man named Michael Reeves. And Michael Reeves was selling short stories and novels, and he was just breaking in. And he was writing animation for television. And we became friends, and he, uh, at one point, he was writing a show called Space Stars for NBC. It had Space Ghost in it. And he, he was writing all of them. 
And he said, you want to write one of these with me? And I said, sure. And so we wrote that together and then uh, Smurfs was just starting up. And so we wrote uh, an episode of Smurfs together and then it was very clear I could write those on my own. And so I started writing for animation. So Smurfs and Super Friends and He-Man and Real Ghostbusters, on and on, tons of shows. And I became the god of animation. Now I'd never wanted particularly to be an animation writer, but that was my way in. And so I was writing for CBS and NBC and ABC and I learned how to write on deadline, how to write as to a specific page count, how to write character voice that was in tune with what the voice of the show was and the voice of the characters, how to structure stories, all the things I would need to write live action TV shows and movies. I was learning my craft in animation. And uh, meantime, I, during that period, I was writing The Twilight Zone Companion, so I was learning that side of things too. So then uh, I could earn uh, $100,000 in just a few months writing for animation. So I, I decided that I would then write a spec live action script as a showpiece to get into live action. So I told all my employers that I was going to uh, take a break to write these, my live action samples feature. And they said, fine. And then as soon as that date came, they started calling me with offers of work. And I had to turn down $200,000 worth of work in two days. And that ruined your writing day. And, uh, and so I then went to UCLA to write the library. And this is before cell phones, so I could write and no one would bother me. And at the end of the day, I would call in for my messages. And, um, but I finished that screenplay, it sold. It was a live action script. It then was, uh, then that was used as a writing sample that got me a, a pilot deal at NBC. And I wrote that pilot and that pilot got shot. And then from then on, I was working in live action. So that led to all the shows I you did on staff, uh, Friday the 13th, the series and sliders and on and on and on. And so the moral of that story is you have to stand for yourself. If you say you're, you're committed to doing something, committed to a certain dream, don't let people deflect you from that dream. Because I could easily have taken that animation work and stayed, I could be talking now and still be in animation. I could be writing whatever the current animation shows are and feeling very like I never had my dream. I never got to do what I wanted to do. Instead, because I was willing to turn down that money and stand up for myself and put in the work, I now have my own studio and I'm shooting what I'm here to be shooting. What I'm, uh, this is my dream project. And, uh, and I'm very grateful to have, have that opportunity. But th that was, that's been my journey. Well, I, I just started out in theater. I started out making stuff because I, I came from acting. You know, I came out of acting. I got seduced by the uh, highs you have as an actor, but it really wasn't for me. I was much more comfortable behind the camera. So I got flattered. I got a lot of flattering comments in terms of my skills in theater, but uh, I really preferred the writing side. So I started just writing reviews and putting those things on, and theatrical, the, theatrical stage, reviews, stage, stage New plays. York, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I just started with making, but also because as an actor, I was brought up in a very political environment, and you couldn't really control the material. And message was extremely important to me. Whereas when I started doing reviews, I could put the message out and this was you know a while back mm -hmm. and bad things were happening mm -hmm. so I, I did that and then when we we got together he seduced me into television yes and so we started co-writing well tv's uh, great tv is great and i started yeah. like doing little things like just giving him notes and that sort of grew it led to collaboration uh, where we were the, writing yes. scripts together and, and so, so sometimes we work individually and sometimes we work together yeah. it depends on the project oh, so i started just giving like notes but it would always be like the character stuff or you know what's what's the wrenching <laughs> stuff and 
because he, he's always very good with the action drive and that kind of thing. Mm. Although not, not everybody knows that I do some of the real kick-ass action yes. scenes. You really can't tell. Reading, reading a script of ours, you really can't tell whose line is this, whose scene is this. It, 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 we just kind of trade off depending. And, uh, and so ultimately it's, it's both of ours. But it's very funny because there was a, a scene between the, 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 our hero and his father who's very condemning and it's his father's in the military. They're both in the military. And there's this button line where, um, you know, there's this very tough line. And one of our friends who's in the Air Force really loved that line. And it's this ballsy, macho line. And it's Elaine. Elaine wrote that line. You know, so, you know, it's great. Really fun. And, uh, but collaboration is, is terrific when someone's on your wavelength. And so I, it's, I really love working with Elaine. But, on, but the, for instance, we have fe uh, a f couple of feature projects now where Elaine's the writer-director and we're both producing. So we have two projects in, in England right now that we're working on. So, um, so it just depends on, on you know, what, what we're doing on a given day. But, yeah. but also we're very good, both of us are very, very good at multitasking. So for instance, in a given week, like just for an, for an example, uh, and this is something I learned in TV to multitask because you're, if, when you're on staff, you're juggling a lot of balls. And sometimes you'll be working on multiple TV shows simultaneously, which I've, I've done many times. So on a given week, we're working on, the, on Space Command 1, which we're in post on and doing v VFX and editing and all sorts of stuff, sound design. We're on Space Command 2, editing what we've shot, but also getting ready to shoot the rest of it. I'm, Elaine just gave me notes on Space Command 3. So I'm going to be rewriting that script. I'm also finishing the new edition of The Twilight Zone Companion. So I'm writing that and also meeting with my, my publisher on the photographs and all that. And then I might be making notes on some of the other things I'm writing as well. And Elaine's working on her feature projects too. So, and, and also that's beside the meetings we're having with, I, like I had lunch yesterday with a producer. Uh, we're, we're, we're scheduling meetings in England. Uh, yeah, it just continues. I mean, the one thing that's fun is that it is a world market. Yes. And so when you're saying, oh, there's no place for it here, say, well, how about France? How about England? You yes. Know, it's, it's truly a world market and you want to reach out as, as broadly as you can because, uh, again, one thing that was really fun about the Kickstarter campaign was to say, oh, goody, there's geeks all over the universe, you know, you can, yes. you know. So, so you say that there are people of like mind uh, in all cultures, and, you know, across the world when you're talking about stuff that's core. And so uh, that's one of the real fun thing, really fun things about being a storyteller and running the table because we get uh, storytellers from all over the world who are telling core stories but from an entirely fresh and different perspective. And so they come to the table because Hollywood has the name, you know. Wonderful stories are being shot and told all over, but Hollywood has the name. And so we have the honor of drawing people from everywhere. And they t talk about their stories and they're fascinating. And so it's, uh, it's really a you know, grand yeah. find and we often help with the um, immigration issues. I mean, we'll, we'll hire actors and so forth and that helps them stay here. Yeah. The biggest success you feel you've both had so far, mm -hmm. and where were you in your life when this happened? Okay, what would you say? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, for me, the, the, the biggest success I've ever had was meeting you. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, that was the, that made everything, you know, I mean, everything that good that's come in my life has been thanks to that. You know, so I, that's, that's, that's the high point, you know. Um, I mean, I've been very, very lucky because um, I met Elaine when I was, I think I just turned 20, and so that was, perfection. That was great because, again, when she met me, I was just a little college student. There was no telling if I would accomplish anything. And she had faith in me. You know, uh, so I, uh, I mean, uh, when I met her, I already knew she was wonderful. But, you know, she was taking a big risk in me. Uh, and it, it worked out. But, but I've been very lucky because, you know, think of all the people who, 
as kids, they want to be writers or directors or, or producers. They, they watch TV shows and they say, God, I'd like to be part of that world. I want to be on the other side of the, that glass of the TV screen. And I got to do that. I got to be that. I mean, my heroes were Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury because they were doing TV and books and movies. And I got to do all of that. And, and so I, I'm very, very lucky. But Elaine had faith in me. And so, and I was, it, it's funny because I was, I was going to say I was unformed. You know, when she met me, you know, I, I wasn't able to do any of the things I can do now. You know, I mean, and, and, but she had already directed off-Broadway. She had already been an actress. She had had adventures. And so I, you know, she had already proven her, her, her yeah. value. I, I think you know. for, for both of us, our biggest success is whatever we're involved in at the moment. We're not most looking back. Yeah. We're sort of drunk, drunk on the moment, the enthusiasm of the moment. Yes. And in a way, it's kind of sad to say, well, that was the big time. No. I think it's that, it's the, it's the ongoing journey. You know, you have to sort of, the success is the ongoing journey, and you have to be a little bit crazy, you know, with, with each new thing and say, this is going to be amazing. Right. And so I don't think it's like one thing, it's... Well, we don't, uh, we don't rest on our laurels. Yeah. I mean, right now is the exciting time. I mean, to have my own studio, to walk into a building filled with spaceship sets. I mean, I mentioned that when I was 10, I went to the Star Trek set, and when I step onto that stage with our, with our spaceship sets, it's the exact same feeling. It's that same thrill, I'm 10 years old again. And, and to be able to create something, it's like every day is like Christmas. It's just basically, my God, wonderful actors, wonderful people to work with. And to be able to, to write and direct and produce with Elaine is such a thrill because she brings the meaning. She makes sure that what I'm doing is meaningful and is working. And, uh, and, and when we're done with this, we'll go back with our editor and we'll sit down with our editor and continue working. And, um, and that's just thrilling. And so, uh, so we're just very lucky to be where we are and doing what we do. So what would you say to someone that might be listening to this that feels that maybe they hit their peak however many years ago mm -hmm. and they feel that there's no, there's no way up for them for whatever reason? Yeah. What would you say to them? Oh, I would say that that has nothing to do with their craft. I think that has to do with feeling stuck in life mm -hmm. and take a walk around the block, talk to people, volunteer, that you know, bring yourself back to your work. Something has happened, there's been a disconnect. And then I doubt very much of it has to do with their, their craft. It, it has to do with some, they've lost something inside, which can easily be regained if you don't tell yourself a story. You know, it's the stories that destroy us. Mm. And to just say, get re-enthused re about your life. And it's not in the past. All those years, even the years of misery, there's, you know, we were talking to um, a, a large group of, of writers in, in in a seminar, and uh, two writers in the far front corner of this large room, they raised their hand and said, well, we're from Denmark, and uh, we, we'd love to work here, but we don't really, we're very different, we have a different culture, you know, we really feel we have nothing to say because we feel like such outsiders. And I said, well, why don't you just turn around and look at everybody else in the audience? And they did. And I said, okay, everybody else in the audience, who here feels like an outsider? And every hand in the room went up. And I said, I think you've got something to write about. And what's, what's important is a lot of people don't realize that. It's like, oh, I feel so alone. And to say, well, everyone tends to feel secretly very alone. And so you understand that even in your loneliness, you're not alone. So have the courage and share it. Mm. And that makes you and everybody else feel less so. And so I, I think um, those feelings to say, I'm feeling it, but I know it's bogus, and I will push through. And what I would also say in that regard is, every day that you wake up is another beginning. And the past 
in a way is an illusion. It's sort of like it's gone. You can't reclaim it. So all you can do is say, what do I want to do with this day? What do I want to do this moment? And you can be an entirely reborn person. But look for people who are positive. Look for people who have a good life energy. Look for people who allow you your dream. And if, if you don't find them where you are, come here. Come to where, you know, where your dreams can be made possible. And don't be stopped. You know, but don't be stu ever stopped. In, Find the way to make it happen. In, in one of my scripts that I'm in the middle of polishing, it was, there's a place of second chances, you know, and and, um, and somebody says, they, they don't believe that there's a place where you can get second chances. And they say, well, because if, if somebody found out that there's a place of second chances, then this place would be flooded. And uh, the fellow he's talking to, he said, laughs and says, no, 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 you're thinking of the town down the way of damn good excuses. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and I think that when sometimes people feel defeated, part of them is looking for the, the good excuse and not really for the second chance because that we can make endlessly. Yeah. But one thing I'll say just in, in conclusion in that regard, uh, I would urge anyone who has a dream to pursue it and to not be deterred and to take a, take a chance you know, and to really go for it. And one day I came home and there was a message on my answering machine and it was Ray Bradbury. And he'd come across something I'd written and he loved it and he invited me to his house. And that was of course a thrill of a lifetime. And I went to his house and we hit it off and we became great friends. And the thing that amazed me about Ray was that I knew him in his 80s and into his 90s. He died at 91. And, and through that whole time, I met him after he'd had a stroke, and he, his schedule as a writer had been to get up five days a week, write f for three hours, then have lunch, take a nap, do, do his business, his writing, you know, the, the business of his career in the afternoon, and then evenings and weekends were for his, his family. And he did that, did that for 70 years. And when I knew him, he'd had a stroke, and his mind was fine, but he couldn't type anymore, and, he, and his handwriting was even very difficult. So what he would do to continue writing was he would wake up in the morning holding the words in his head. He would then call his daughter in Arizona and dictate the words to her. She would type them and then fax them, them to him and he would make hand corrections on, on the typescript. He, in that, he, that, that was how he wrote. And he was writing two new books a year through his 80s into his 90s. And he was made of iron. And so, and so this is the kind of person that I wanted to be my inspiration and my mentor because I saw how determined he was. Nothing was going to stop him. And that was wonderful to see and certainly something I want to emulate. So I would urge everyone to take that to heart and not be deterred.